grab your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16. This is our last Sunday in Deuteronomy chapter 16. We've only been here for three or four weeks, so we're going to move on after today. Um, am I on? I'm on. Hey, uh, it is good to, to have you here this morning, and I wanted to say thank you for that uh, song, James. I like that uh, a lot. Uh, the names of God are vitally important because they communicate something uh, about his character and his nature, and uh, we need every one of those names that uh, gives a, a new uh, uh, perspective or aspect of who God is and his character. So thank you very much for that. We're in the middle of our study uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. And as you guys know that this book is all about Moses preparing a new nation to enter into uh, the promised land. This, this land that God has, uh, has promised to Abraham 400 years earlier. And he said... Abraham and your descendants, you're going to get this land and I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and I'm going to make you great. But there are some hiccups along the way. There are always, friends, there are always hiccups along the way, along the way in becoming great. Okay? You ask any professional athlete, whether it's uh, the late Kobe Bryant or uh, or, or uh, Michael Jordan, uh, or even, you know, great baseball players or football players. There are always hurdles. There are blips on the screen. There, there, there are speed bumps in the road to becoming great. The same is true for a nation. Today, we're going to look at one of those speed bumps, if you will. I hate to even put it like that because it's far more significant than just a speed bump. The whole issue today that we're looking at is the issue of idolatry. And idolatry was not just a problem that the ancient Israels had to deal with uh, thousands of years ago and why Moses had to give them a prescription to meet it is something that you and I struggle with even today. Even if you're a Christian, you're going to struggle with idolatry. Do you know why? Does anybody want to take a guess as to why? Because the heart. Yeah, we're going to actually quote Calvin. Thank you for quoting Calvin already. We're going to quote Calvin. It is a fa You've already stole my thunder. No. I got more thunder. So, nah. actually, God's got more, more thunder. But the point that I'm, uh, yeah, is that. But also, not only that, our culture. Our culture is inundated with idols. That's not new either. The people of God uh, in, in, in Israel who are going into a land that was inhabited by the Canaanites, by the Jebusites, by the Hivites, and so on and so forth, all of these different people, they had their religious uh, uh, deities. They had their idols. They had their pagan preferences. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. It takes a different form than it did thousands of years ago. But friends and, and family, guess what? 
There is an idol-making factory in every seat in this room. And we have to learn how to deal with it. And so we're going to be talking about that. Aren't you excited? Yeah, yeah, me neither. All right, so let's read God's Word together. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. And we're going to go through chapter 17, verse 7. And this is God's Word. You shall not plant any tree... As an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which uh, is a blemish, any defect, whatever. For that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you with any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, is, transgress, is in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Those were the days, weren't they? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these words. Yes, we do say thank you. Father, these, we confess, are very difficult words. They feel like very damning words. Um, but these words are necessary, and you also tell us that they're sufficient. And that they are as much for us today as they were for the ancient Israelites thousands of years ago. And so, Father, I pray right now in this, these few moments that we have that you would come and speak to our hearts about this issue and this subject of idolatry and the seriousness of it. And I pray, Father, you'd give us the remedy, the bondage breaker, and the death defeater that we just sung about because we need him the one who did not lift up his soul to an idol we need Jesus right now and so be with us as we pray amen all right so what is Moses talking about here it's pretty obvious isn't it I don't, I mean, this is not rocket science, uh, though we have some rocket scientists in the room. This is not rocket science. He's talking about idolatry. He's talking about worshiping other gods. And he's also talking about the seriousness of it. And those are our two lessons. We're going to talk a little bit about idolatry and what it is. Okay, but then we're also going to talk about how damaging it is and how serious it is, how serious it is in God's eyes. We need to know what God thinks and says about it, not what we think and say about it, okay? Because we're going to be a lot better off if we look at the issue of idolatry the same way that God looks at it, okay? 
And so those are our two things today. So let's start with worshiping other gods, okay? Uh, you, a couple of things here. You understand that the people of God, of Israel, were heading into a land that was dominated by pagan religions, okay? And one of the chief uh, religions uh, that they were going to be combating was this religion of Asherah, okay? Does anybody know who Asherah is? Asherah was the, uh, the wife, supposedly, of the god El, okay? Uh, Canaanite uh, god. She was the goddess associated uh, with fertility, and so the Canaanites who worshipped her would set up these poles. And they were at least partially made of wood so that they could be burned. Or they could also be overlaid with precious metals like gold and with silver because they could also be broken or crushed. And so what is the, pro what is the prohibition that Moses is now giving to the people of God as they enter into the promised land. He says, don't you dare make one of these Asherah poles or erect one of these Asherah poles and put it next to the altar of the Lord your God, the one who has brought you out of Egypt, the one who has delivered you, the one who has uh, 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 taken you through the Red Sea and kept you alive in the wilderness. Don't uh, erect an Asherah pole because, and here it is, you're turning that pole into a God and it was never meant to be. It's pointing to a God that doesn't exist. There is one God, and as Exodus chapter 20 tells us, verse 5, there is but one God, and he is a jealous God, and he will not give his glory to another. Wow. That's dangerous stuff. And so Moses is addressing this whole issue of idolatry. And one of the things that I think we know as we continue to read the story of God's people, as we even read our own lives, that, that idolatry has always plagued the people of God. It's always plagued the people of God. It's plagued the people of God in the past. And it plagues the people of God even in days present. And just because you're in church today, you're watching online, it doesn't mean that you don't struggle with idolatry. All of us do. Friends, to live in the world, in this world, is to struggle with idolatry. And here's why. And I want you to listen to a guy by the name of Tony Reinke. He is a writer at Desiring God Ministries. And listen to what he writes. He says... The reformers, that is Luther and Calvin and others, perceived the ancient expression of idol-making as simply the expression of an inner idol, a falsely placed confidence. And so idolatry is what? It is a falsely placed confidence. It's actually a matter of the heart. It's not actually the, the crafting of this thing uh, and then bowing down to it. It's something that's already misplaced and broken and torqued in your own heart. That's what idolatry is. It's something that's already askew. It's already amiss. There's a longing there that you simply want to try to fill. And you can't do it even though you try over and over again. That's what idolatry is. 
Do you understand what Reiki is saying? Think back to Exodus chapter 32. How many of you know what happened in Exodus chapter 32? Exodus chapter 32 is where, uh, where it is called the golden calf incident. And what's happening there? Moses has gone away, hasn't he? And he's been gone a little bit too long for the comfort of the people of Israel. He was gone to get the, uh, uh, the, the law of God and to bring it back to him. He can communicate God's words to him. But they, he's been gone too long. And the people get anxious. Where's Moses gone? What is he doing? Has he left us? We're going to die in the wilderness. This is the, these are their thoughts. And so they conscript Aaron to say, okay, Aaron, you've got this skill of making metals. You've got this skill. You can fashion for us the God of our salvation. And so they pour all of this gold and silver and all of this stuff together. They pile it together. And op, how does Aaron describe it? Out pops this golden calf. Out pops. Really? You worked like a dog to put that thing together, Aaron. And so what Reinke is saying is that the fashioning of the calf, even the bowing down to it, is the expression of an inner idol. It is the expression of a misplaced or false confidence that already exists in the human heart. Reinke goes on to say, the Protestant Reformation was a declaration of war in vain thoughts about God. And when war is declared against vain thoughts about God, war is declared on the culture's idols. Mm. Friends, you and I are always, and I think I've already mentioned this, we're always being bombarded by the culture's idols. Those idols could be idols uh, for power. That the strong, you know, have all the power in the world, right? They're the ones who have all the money, or ones who have all the influence, that they can achieve all the things that they want, right? And so the culture says you've got to chase that so that you can get what you want out of life. Otherwise, you're left to the whims of everybody else. And so there's idols of power. There's idols of security. There's idols of comfort. One of the biggest idols of today is the idol of the authentic self. Which essentially says that I have the right to identify however I want to be identified, to be perceived regardless of biology or sexual orientation. I get to determine who I am in front of everybody else. And what happens? These, these are the loudest messages of our culture that get played over and over and over again. And so for you and me to live before God, to live before Koram uh, Deo, before the face of God, is actually to wage war on the cultural influences and idols that begin to shape our lives. And that war is oftentimes in our own hearts. Mia has already mentioned that one of, the, one of the people who fought this battle, even back in the 16th century, was a guy by the name of Reformer named uh, John Calvin. And listen to what he wrote. He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. That comes from his magnum opus, Institutes of the Christian Religion. 
Do you hear that? It is in your nature, and guess what? It's in my nature to crank out idol after idol after idol. Calvin goes on to say, Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. You see, nothing is more dangerous than religious confidence in a false God of our own imagining. So let me ask you a question this morning. What are you placing your confidence in? Do you feel like you have to be the most important person in any room that you go into? Do you feel like uh, you have to be the coolest kid in the room? Do you feel like you have to have the nicest things? Do you have to have the most well-behaved children? Yeah, we wish. Yeah. We can turn anything into an idol, even very good things like our children. We can put them in a position that they were never, ever meant to hold. We can set them up for so much failure. And guess what? We live in a day and age where that has become so prevalent. Our kids can't fail. Don't let them fail. What will it do with them? It will crush their self-esteem. Guess what, people? Jesus failed. world's economy. Not in God's economy. Jesus won in God's economy. But everything that was supposed to be the way things are, Jesus was an absolute failure. He was a nobody. He was born in a podunk little town in the middle of nowhere. It just happened to be the king's town. We can turn anything, even good things, into idols. And by themselves, listen, none of those things are intrinsically evil, are they? But if your worth, if your value, if your significance is derived from any of those things or anything other than the one true God, then whatever that thing is that you have to have, it's an idol. And it has become your functional deity. It has become your God. It has become what you bow to. And so Moses tells the Israelites, those Asherah poles are dangerous. They will captivate, uh, captivate your hearts. They will lure you away from me. Don't give them an inch. And friends, the same warning is given to us today through an English Puritan by the name of John Owen who says, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Be killing that idolatry. You, do you understand that the Christian life is actually one of identifying what the idols are in our lives and continually working to dismantle them? There's the Christian life right there in a nutshell. It is to continue 
to identify those areas where Jesus is not supreme in our affections. Jesus is not supreme. And working to dismantle them so that Jesus is supreme. So that's the issue of idolatry. The second thing we need to look at is this. As the seriousness of idolatry and syncretism. Look at verses 2 through 7 in chapter 17. If there is found among you with any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord and transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or sun or moon or the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it, you shall inquire diligently. And if it's true certain and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil, and you shall stone the man or woman to death with stones. Wow. So what's going on here? Well, look at verse 2. It says, if a man or woman does evil in the sight of God, that's very generic, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, in this context, Moses specifies this generic expression and what is the specific transgression that he's talking about? He's talking about violating God's covenant by worshiping other gods. And after careful investigation, if someone is convicted of worshiping other gods, what is the penalty? Pretty harsh, isn't it? It's death. It's pretty obvious how seriously God takes idolatry isn't it it's pretty evident how God takes the issue of bowing down and worshiping other gods it's a capital crime that deserves the most damning of penalties it's saying it seems so harsh doesn't it but is it really I want you to consider the context here's God he has delivered out of slavery uh, his people. Not only that, he's also put to death his enslavers. Do you remember the story of the Exodus? They come out of Egypt. They walk through on dry ground through the Red Sea. Who follows them through the dry ground? It's the Egyptians. It's the army. And what happens? God then covers them over with the, the water. He, he actually destroys those who kept them in bondage. Not only that, he provided for them food and water in the desert. How much water is there in a desert? How much food is there in a desert? Okay, so these are miraculous things that God is doing. Extraordinary things. There's very little water, very little food. He's protected them against vast armies that were greater and more uh, equipped than they were. He has led them and guided them and saved them from venomous snakes and various other natural catastrophes. And he's been with them every step of the way. And they've been a children to him and he has been their father. And so to bow down to other gods, to worship other gods, is really what? It's an issue of just ingratitude. It's an issue of being unappreciative. It is actually to thumb your nose at the one who has been the most constant provider and protector. It is the thinking, I'll pass on all of your kindness because I'm better off without you. 
How many of us would love to, uh, when our kids get to be 18 years old, uh, and they, we've, we've fed them and clothed them for 18 years, we've educated them, uh, we've given them all kinds of experience, and as soon as they turn 18, they simply say, you know what, thanks, but I think I'll be taking off now, and I'm not coming back. How would that make you feel as a parent? Doesn't that stink? Where's the gratitude? <laughs> what do you mean you're taking off? Seriously? Of course, there are some kids who come back and they never leave, but that's a different story altogether. Um, I'm not saying anything to you. Did not have you in mind. Not have you in mind. But you understand what I'm talking about? How That's essentially what we're talking about here. C.S. Lewis wrote on heaven and hell and grace and judgment. I want you to listen to this. And he's been very, very helpful in helping me understand this a whole lot uh, more. But listen to this. And I think this is beautiful. To, to enter heaven, he says, is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. To enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What is cast, or better put, cast itself into hell, is not a man, but his remains. To be a complete man, that would be the one going to heaven, means to have passions obedient to the will, and then that will being offered to God. To have been a man, past tense, or to be an ex-man or a damned ghost would presumably mean to consist of a will utterly centered where? In itself. And passions utterly controlled by the will. Do you see what Lewis is saying? That hell, that judgment, that death comes as a result of actually becoming less human. Of becoming so self-absorbed, so self-centered that you lose sight of all the kindness that God has shown. In hell, God makes room for those who are not interested in God. Lewis simply writes, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful. <laughs> They're rebels to the end, and that the doors are locked on the inside. You understand what he's saying there? Those who go to hell, those who receive God's judgment, do it to themselves. The door is locked on the inside. I've chosen something other than the one true God and all of his grace and all of his do you understand that the, the Bible even tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God? The whole, world, uh, the whole world, the whole cosmos, all of creation is screaming, God exists. The whole creation in one shape, fashion, or form or another is saying, I love you. God is screaming to us. And then the most vibrant expression is that one right there. I love you. I even died for you. I want you forever to be mine. You're my bride. 
You're going to be beautiful and radiant. You're going to be as white as snow when you put on eternity. You're going to be mine forever. That's what C.S. Lewis is talking about here. The doors are locked on the inside. Do you see how dangerous and serious then idolatry is? Number one, it's delusional. It makes us think that we don't need God. Because the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Listen, if your chosen God, let's give an example, is your kids and how well they make you look. And when they perform well, everything is good and right in the world. But what is it happens when they fail? Or if they bring embarrassment upon you, does the world end? Does it come crashing down? Or maybe you think you should have gotten that promotion at work. And the world is your oyster if you get it. And the world is over if you don't. To understand... What the Bible actually teaches us is this. That we need someone to free us from ourselves and from our vain imaginings of God. That's what the Bible is teaching us. And that's why Moses gave this legislation to ancient Israel. He knew long before Calvin that the temptation to bow down to, the temptation to serve, the temptation to worship other gods is so strong that we need something to deter us from it. It is also only God and is also why God sent Jesus. Where we have bowed to the culture's idols, where we have given ourselves over to that which is false, Jesus has not. And speaking of, of Jesus, long before Jesus ever stepped on the scene, King David wrote in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, Who will, shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in the holy place? And then he gives the description, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false, or as some translations put it, he does not lift his soul to an idol and does not swear deceitfully. That's Jesus. Not only that, Paul later tells us he made him who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus took the death reserved for idolaters so that idolaters could be welcomed back into God's family so that you and I could be whole again. I'm going to end with a little bit of C.S. Lewis this morning. I want to end with a little illustration. How many of you have read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia series? All of it. Not just the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. May I kindly encourage you? Read it. Yes, it's children's literature, but it is so good. But there's, uh, how many of you have read uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Okay, wonderful story. Um, we are introduced to a character in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, a guy by the name of Eustace Scrub. Uh, I love how C.S. Lewis uh, opens, it, uh, opens it up. He said he almost deserved it, that name. Uh, it's really kind of funny uh, to have a name like Eustace Scrub. Uh, at any rate, but if you know anything about Eustace, Eustace was not the kindest of individuals. As a matter of fact, he was an absolute pill. 
and uh, he was very self-centered, very self-absorbed. He was not kind to uh, Lucy and to Edmund, who had come to visit with them, and then they all get sucked into Narnia. And they, they meet Prince Caspian, which was a long-time friend of Lucy and Edmund. And they find themselves on this, uh, this uninhabited island. And Eustace, of course, everybody says we need to stay together because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if there are people here or anything like that. But what does Eustace do? Eustace goes off and by himself, and he ends up, finding a dragon's lair, and in that dragon's lair is what? Gold, and plenty of it. And he gets, he finds this armlet, and he puts on this armlet, and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he discovers that he is in a dragon himself. Why? C.S. Lewis says it's because he had greedy and dragonous intentions in his heart. He craved money. And so he became that which he craved. He became a dragon. And I love how C.S. Lewis then tells his story. He says, things seem hopeless for Eustace. There's nothing he can do to change himself back into human form. But then one night he meets Aslan, who leads him to a garden on top of a mountain. And there he finds a well of water. And Eustace wants to bathe, but Aslan tells him that he must undress first. And so Eustace remembers earlier on that uh, he saw another dragon, and that dragon went and got in a pool and shedded his skin and all that kind of stuff. So he remembers that dragons can shed their skin. Um, and so, uh, and so he, he goes and he gets in the pool and he scratches and he scratches, and eventually the dragon's skin comes off. Underneath, however, he finds another dragon's skin. And then he finds another dragon skin. And he finds another. He eventually despairs. And then Aslan says to him, you will have to let me undress you. And Aslan uses his lion claws, tearing the dragon in a way completely, tearing so deeply that Eustace feels as if he has gone straight through his heart. It hurts him worse than anything he has ever felt. The next thing he knows is Aslam is thro throwing him into the water. And then in his excitement, he realizes he's been turned into a boy again. What's the point of that story? Friends, for our greedy, dragonish, idolatrous hearts, we too, like Eustace, had to go to Aslan. We too have to come to Jesus and let him undress us. Do you know what that word is called in the Christian faith? It's called repentance. Repentance. 
We never get past it. We never grow past the point of needing to repent. You don't go past the gospel. You grow deeper into it. That's what the good news of the gospel is all about. It's repentance. Christians need repentance just like everyone else. Friends, the whole Christian life is about coming back to Jesus daily. It's coming back to him for forgiveness. It's coming back to him for courage. It's coming back to him for strength. It's coming back to him for joy, for everything we need. So what do you think you and I need to do today? We need to come back to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for your grace that never ends. And thank you that we can have hearts that are cleansed when we come back to you in repentance and in faith. Father, forgive us our dragonous hearts. Forgive us for the ways that we have not honored you with our lives. Forgive us for the idols that we have made and we pray that you would crush them under the weight of your glory and grace. We need you, Lord. That's our confession this morning. And so we bow to you and you only. You are the one true God. We have our life and our being in you and you alone. Help us to experience it. Help us to know us. Help us to relish it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.